Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Conceit. Rather, in my humility, value, in, rather in humility, value of others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, the gospel of our Lord. Good morning, TGC. It is good to be here with you. Love, I love getting the opportunity to come and just to be here with this beautiful community. You all have a beautiful community here. I, I, I just love seeing what God is doing here. And um, yeah, Michael uh, asked me to come and preach for you this morning, and um, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, as Jeremy said, I have the privilege of pastoring uh, Hope East Village over in the community of the East Village. We've been around for about a year and a half now. And uh, it's just been amazing to see the, the community that's forming there in the East Village. So this morning, uh, you heard from our teaching text in Philippians 1 and 2. And uh, just to, to remind you, as Paul writes this letter, he's writing this from prison. So he's sitting uh, in probably on house arrest under, the guard, uh, under Roman guard writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And so as we get into this letter, as we look into this, the title of our sermon this morning, what I want to talk to you about this morning is from the topic, An Alternative Politics. An Alternative Politics. Would you pray with me? 
God in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who does not sit far off from us, but you are a God who delights to draw near. And so we acknowledge your presence here with us this morning. God, we thank you for the privilege of being called sons and daughters. We thank you for who you are, for what you do, and for the fact that we can call you our God. Lord, this morning as we open up your word, I pray that whatever we come in here with, some of us are coming in with uh, feeling the heights of joy. Some of us are coming in experiencing the depths of sorrow and everything in between that, God. I, I pray that wherever we're at this morning, that you would meet us right where we are that your spirit would speak, that you would move. I, I pray that you would open up our hearts to be able to receive your word, that it would take root in our hearts and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold to your glory. And Lord, I pray that my presence here this morning would not be a distraction from what you want to do, but that you would move me out of the way, hide me behind your cross, Jesus, so that you might be all in all. And so to that end, I ask, as I always do, that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've been paying attention to the national landscape of American political and civic life, it should come as no shock to you that one of the primary questions sitting at the center of national debate and controversy is the question, what constitutes being an American? What does it mean to be American? In light of the national conversations surrounding immigration and the crisis at our southern border, writers, journalists, and, and news pundits have constantly been asking this question from different angles. It's also the question that has been at the center of the national debate surrounding Colin Kaepernick and other athletes who decided to kneel during the national anthem as a protest against racial injustice and police brutality. Because for some, kneeling during the national anthem is regarded as a thoroughly un-American act. While for others, exercising the right to peaceful protest is indeed thoroughly American. When, when, when Grinnell College conducted a poll on this question about American identity in November of 2018, they got a range of answers from people. Some people identified citizenship as what constitutes whether or not one is American. Some identified different cultural attributes and others pointed to certain values that people hold. Now this question about citizenship Identity and proper Americanness is not new in America. It's been around for centuries. And this question is not unique to America. Every country, every kingdom, every empire has sought to establish a picture of what a model citizen looks like. And for all of them, the model citizen is one whose way of life helps to reinforce and propagate the values and virtues of the empire. The question of what it means to live as a citizen of a particular place actually sits at the core of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. 
to understand this, you need to understand a little bit about the city of Philippi. See, Philippi was a colony on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And when I say colony, I mean that it was a territory that was acquired by the empire through the conquest of war. And one of the things that Caesar did upon colonizing Philippi was to make it into a place where Roman military veterans would settle down and live out the rest of their days. And these military veterans had one job as citizens of Rome. It was their responsibility to bring the culture of Rome to the newly acquired colony of Philippi. That was their job. Bring the culture of Rome to this newly colonized city of Philippi. So you can imagine, they would erect public monuments. They would put on parades and processionals. They would, they would organize public displays of allegiance to Caesar. They, they probably taught a certain version of Roman history in their schools. And they would make a spectacle of any people who demonstrated that they weren't loyal or willing to acquiesce to the ways of Rome. And the whole point was to get the people of Philippi to understand that now that they have the great privilege of being under Caesar's rule and reign, this is the way that life is supposed to look. And these are the values that they need to adopt now that they are under Roman jurisdiction. This was the special responsibility that was placed on Roman citizens. Wherever you are sent, Bring the culture of Rome with you, your way of life, your conduct as citizens should be one that causes the culture of Rome to take root where you are. And so with talk of citizenship sitting at the core of life in, in Philippi, Paul decides to take direct aim at this conversation in his letter to the Philippian church. And as he makes his way through his extended introduction in the first 26 verses, in, in which he is thanking the church for their financial support of him while he's in prison and catching them up to speed on his current situation, he dives right into this citizenship conversation. So he's like, okay, enough about me. Let me get to the point of why I'm writing this letter. And so in chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, only one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's only one thing that I really want to say to you in this letter. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Let the way that you conduct your life together as the community of Jesus in the colony of Philippi be worthy of the good news that Jesus has been exalted as the one king and one lord. The word that is translated here as manner of life, that phrase manner of life, is actually the word politeuste. And it means your common life as citizens in a political order. The root word there is where we get our word politics from. And so Paul's point would have been very clear to the Philippian church. Rome is trying to teach you how to be proper citizens so that you can pledge allegiance to its Caesar and uphold the values of its empire. But your allegiance is to another king and lord whose name is Jesus. 
And you are citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Therefore, don't worry about bringing the culture of Rome to Philippi. Make it your business to bring the culture of heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I've heard so many people say that following Jesus isn't political. And I think I know what they mean by that. But, but I would say it like this. Following Jesus is intensely political but it's not partisan, meaning that it's not Republican or Democrat. See, to confess Jesus as Lord is a political confession. The word politics just refers to the way human community is ordered and organized under a particular governing body. And here's what we are literally saying when we say that we confess Jesus as Lord. We're saying that we pledge allegiance to a different kingdom. We recognize a different Lord as having ultimate authority, not the lords and kings and presidents of this world. And in light of this authority, we seek to live out an alternative way of life. And when you put it like this, it's no wonder that Paul's proclamation of the gospel in the midst of the Roman Empire got him put in prison time and time again. And it ultimately got him executed as an enemy of the state. But what is this alternative politics that Paul is talking about? What is this manner of life that is worthy of the gospel? Or to say it another way, what is this way of life that is of equal weight with the gospel? That's what the word worthy means here in this context. This picture here that Paul is painting is that if you were to take the life of the community, and put it on one side of a scale, and you were to take the gospel and put it on the other side, they should balance out. There should be no discrepancy between the two. Our way of life should match our proclamation. See, in Paul's opinion, there's nothing more damaging to the witness of the gospel than people whose way of life is out of step with their confession. For Paul, there's nothing more damaging to the gospel than people who are more shaped by the culture of the empire in which they live than they are the way of Jesus. And we all know this to be true. This is something that we all know to be true. This is why we've heard some people say, and you may have said this yourself, that they don't have an issue with Jesus, they just have an issue with the church. It's why Gandhi famously said, I love your Jesus, but I hate your Christians. And this is exactly what Paul feared could happen in Philippi if the church kept going in the direction that it had recently started to go. But as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, he had the utmost confidence that what God had started in them, God would bring to completion. Because God does not, God finishes what God starts. See, I, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. But you need to hear that God finishes what God starts. You might be discouraged this morning because you feel like you've been failing in your walk with Jesus. You can't seem to break free of that stronghold. You, you can't seem to get through that struggle and you feel like your witness has been weak. But I want you to know this morning that God ain't done with you yet. God is not done writing the story of your life. God is not done forming and reforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. 
God's not done with that. God's not done with what God is doing in this community here in Tribeca. You need to know that God doesn't do halfway jobs. God will bring to completion what God started. That was Paul's word of encouragement to the church in Philippi, and it's his word of encouragement to you this morning. But what is this way of life that God is going to bring to completion, that God is going to work out, that God desires the people to work out in their life together? See, it's this alternative way of life, this alternative politics that as a church in the East Village, we say that we want to live out when we talk about things like our values of living neighborly and living justly and living generously and living beautifully. It's this alternative politics, this alternative way of life that you all talk about when you say that you want to be about living the way of Jesus for the good of the city. But Paul really sums it up with one idea that he breaks down in chapters 2 and 3. And in chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, Paul says that this alternative way of life under the rule and reign of God looks like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let me say that again, because I don't think you got how jarring that is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the shock of those statements sink into your system for just a few seconds. All you have to do is read those two verses to see that the way of Jesus is a radically different way of being human. And I'm not going to lie, this is a hard pill to swallow. This, this is a hard pill to swallow. Regard others as better than myself? Excuse me, Paul? Think of others' interests, not my own? Listen, ain't no one in this world more important than me. Oh, you're judging me for that now. See, see, none of us would have the audacity to say it like that, but we functionally live that way. We functionally live that way. And who could blame us? This is the way that our culture has taught us to live. You look out for you. You put your own interest front and center. This is the politics of our culture. This is the way that our common life together is ordered and organized. This is, this is the ethic behind how we're taught to vote. You vote for your own best interests. You vote for a way of life that will protect your rights. This is the ethic that undergirds our economic system of capitalism, which says there's not enough to go around, so you better do what you got to do to secure the bag for yourself. Everywhere we turn, we are taught to put self at the center of our world. 
This is the way of our culture. And you don't even have to try hard to be formed in this way. This is just what we swim in all the time. This is, what, this is the way in which we will be formed all the time if we're not intentional about being formed in a different way. Listen, we live inside a culture that intentionally aims to breed competition, one-upsmanship, and using people as the next rung on our ladder to climb higher. Because the idea is that competition breeds innovation and advancement and progress. All things that are beneficial to the empire, by the way. And listen, I'm not saying that competition doesn't breed innovation. It often does. And I'm not saying that innovation is a bad thing. It's not. But I'm saying that innovation isn't the only thing that competition breeds. See, whenever a culture encourages people to put self at the center, which inevitably pits people against one another, it will always give birth to division, mistrust, fear, suspicion, and greed. Which is why the things that I just mentioned, the things that are right there on that screen, are the things that dominate our national political life. These things are the children of a self-centered way of life. This is what Paul saw starting to happen in the Philippian church as they began to adopt the self-centered politics of Rome. You know, the Reformation theologian Martin Luther described sin as incurvatus in se, as being curved in on itself. It's that power from the pit of hell that causes us to be curved in on ourselves. In other words, sin causes us to live within the closed circle of the self, a prison whose doors are locked from the inside. Listen, self-centeredness is a killer, y'all. We just need to call that out and name it. It, it kills relationships. It kills communities. It causes people to just straight up kill. And guess what? It kills our joy, too. It kills our joy. We've been sold a lie. Because we've been told that putting ourselves first, we've been told that you being about you is the key to unlocking happiness and joy in your life. But the only thing that self-centeredness is the key to is the key to locking yourself within your own prison. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you knew this, but, but the Jesus that I confess is a Jesus that's about setting the captives free. And the Spirit of God wants to blow through this place this morning and let some people out of the self-centered prison that you're in. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus wants to form you and, and, and bring you into this alternative politic, this different way of life, and, and to let you know that there is a better way, a different way to be human. There is a better way to live. See, this alternative way of life that Paul describes here is not only beautiful beyond measure, but it is the greatest witness to the gospel that you and I can embody. And I'll simply put it to you like this. The alternative politics of the kingdom of God and the key to our overflowing joy is a radically other-centered way of life.
the alternative politics of the kingdom, and the key to our overflowing joy is a radically other-centered way of life. Theologian Daniel Migliore from Princeton Seminary says that the gospel brings about a radical decentering and recentering of human life. Meaning that the gospel moves us to decenter ourselves and recenter the other with God reigning over it all. And Paul's shorthand for a radically other-centered way of life is what he calls humility. Now, it's a known fact that humility was not regarded as a virtue within the Greco-Roman world. See, the Greek word for humility was the word that was used to describe the condition of those who were servile, lowly, and ignorant. It described those who lacked the dignity and independence and self-esteem of the Greek philosopher or the Roman citizen. But for Paul, humility was to be the preeminent virtue of citizens of the kingdom of God because it is the preeminent virtue of our king. And when we use the word humility, uh, when it's used in our culture, oftentimes it, it, it refers to a sort of self-deprecating type of mentality or a woe is me type of mentality. But, but that's not what humility is. See, I love what C.S. Lewis says when he defines humility this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so let me try to describe for you the picture that, that Paul is painting here of this other-centered way of life. Imagine a relationship, a family, a workplace, a community, where, where self-centeredness sits at the core. Shouldn't be too hard to imagine, right? I think we, we've all experienced those communities before. The sort of thoughts that pass through your mind in this type of environment are, I've got to be about my own interest because nobody else will be. I've got to care about securing my own rights because nobody else will care. I've got, about, I've got to be about getting my own needs met because nobody else is going to care about meeting my needs. On the other hand, when an other-centered way of life an other-centered ethic sits at the core of a community. This is what Paul has in mind. I don't have to throw myself into a fit of anxiety worrying about my rights and my wants and my needs. My brothers and my sisters got my back so I can be free to have their backs. Paul is describing a community in which being my brother and my sister's keeper is the norm. Now, don't be mistaken, Paul is not saying that this is the way the world works. He's saying that this is the way that the world does not work. The world is not this way. And when Jesus sends us out into the world formed in this way of humility, he's sending us out to use Jesus' words as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is not going to be easy. This is part of the cross that we are called to carry, to be people of humility and other-centeredness in a radically self-centered world. But Paul is saying that within the community of Jesus, where we confess that Jesus is Lord, this is the way that life should look. This should be our politics. 
This should be how our common life together under the rule and reign of Jesus is ordered and organized. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Just like self-centeredness tends to generate more self-centeredness. So, so I want you to picture, you know, you walk into your office or your workplace. You, you're starting out on the job and you walk into that place and you immediately get this vibe that everyone in here is about their own promotion, their, their own progress. They're, they're about getting theirs. What does that do to you? How does that make you feel? Well, what we start to do is we start to adopt that same way of, of being and thinking in that environment. It's a mode of survival for us. I, I, if everybody else is out for their own, guess what? I got to be out for my own. We, we adopt that same way of thinking when that is part of the culture. That's just what happens. But just like self-centeredness tends to generate more self-centeredness, other-centeredness does the same. And I guarantee you that you've experienced this at some point in your life. Think about how you felt when, when that, that person went out of their way to do something for you, to, to meet your needs and to care for you even though it inconvenienced them. What did that do in you? How did that make you feel? Most likely it caused you to, to somehow want to, to pay them back and pass that kindness on, somehow. You wanted to, to extend that outward, the, the same generosity and grace and kindness and thoughtfulness that you received, you want to extend that back outward. You know, it reminds me of something that my dad told me years ago when I was just a kid. See, my dad, who's retired now, he, he worked in the car business for years. He owned his own dealership and he then he worked for corporate Mazda for many years. And he told me that one principle that he always sought to practice in his business relationships, whether, whether it be with a superior, a peer, an employee, or a customer, is that he always wanted to go out of his way to help someone else out and put someone else in a better position, even if it meant that he had to take a hit. Because he knew that this sort of thing is contagious. And he also knew that when the time came that he was in need, someone else would look out for him. And his point wasn't to say, look out for others so that they'll look out for you. His point was that humility generates humility. Or to put it in the biblical sense, you reap what you sow. So if we're constantly sowing a self-centered way of life, you better believe that that's what you're going to reap in a community. But if you're sowing a beautiful, other-centered way of life, what you will get out of that is something that's beautiful beyond measure. But real quick, let me give you a practical handle for how you can take a step to begin implementing an other-centered way of thinking into your life. See, there are a lot of different things that we could look at uh, about, what the, about how this shapes up in our lives. But, but let me just give you this to think about. Other-centered living means not having my own benefit be the primary factor in how I make decisions. Other-centered living means not having my own benefit be the primary factor in how I make decisions. Y'all get that? 
See, everything we do and every decision that we make has to pass through a grid or a filter of some kind. It's like a test, a, a set of questions that we ask ourselves when we're deciding on something. And without a doubt, the self-centered filter will always be some variation of this. How does it benefit me? How will it help me get ahead? Does it fit my interest? Is it suitable to my taste buds? Self-centeredness has that as its first line of questioning. An other-centered filter asks a different set of questions. How will this affect my neighbor? Will this help or hurt them? Will this help promote their flourishing or cause them to suffer? See, the alternative politics of the kingdom has this as its primary concern. My neighbor. My neighbor. Try on that way of thinking for a week and just see what happens. Try moving through the world with, with that as your filter and just see what happens. Live inside of your family with, with your, your partners and spouses and children and those who are in your context and your neighbors who live next door. Try thinking that way for just a week, just a day, and see what happens in your context. But you know, the most practical thing that you and I can do to be formed in the way of humility, in this alternative way of life, is to gaze at Jesus. See, it's the same principle that is talked about throughout Scripture, that what we gaze at, what our, our hearts, minds, and eyes, and imaginations are fixed on, we, be, we start to reflect that. We become like it. That's one of the reasons why Scripture is so deeply against idolatry worship. Because it's like if we set our hearts and minds on something, we start to become like that thing. That's why God is saying, no, I want you to worship me. I want you to gaze at me so that you can begin to reflect my wisdom and my character and my justice and my love and my goodness out into the world. See, Paul's whole letter up to this point has been building to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the rest of the letter, it flows out of these verses. These verses throughout the course of church history have come to be known as the Christ hymn. Where it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. See, something happens to us when we gaze at this Jesus, the one who thought about our salvation before he thought about his own satisfaction. 
Something happens when we consider this Jesus who got the cross so that we could get the kingdom. Something happens when we look upon this Savior who took on our grief so that we could take on his glory. See, this is our king who, though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. This is our king who became as we are so that we might become as he is. This is our king who was counted as a criminal so that we might be counted as co-heirs of heaven. And though he was humiliated by the empires of this world on a wooden cross, God has exalted him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day, every king, every ruler, every Caesar, every governor from past, present, and future will confess the name of our humble king. But today, this morning, in this community, in Tribeca, we will bow the knee and confess the name in advance of that great day. And we will make it our business as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior to bring the humble, self-giving, other-centered culture of heaven to the city in which we reside. And so our prayer is your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through our lives and by our prayers, may your kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. You are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who gives of your own life so that we might have life. You invite us to share in the beautiful, divine life of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, you invite us into that divine dance. For that we say thank you. And so, God, I pray that this way of self-giving, this way of other-centeredness that, that you so beautifully display in and through your son Jesus, that that way of life would take shape here in this community, here in New York City. Lord, that as we relate to one another, our way of thinking would be, how can I be about the flourishing of my, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, Instead of simply being, how can I be about securing my rights and, and my good for myself? The way of your kingdom is upside down and inside out. It doesn't make sense in the world and in the empire in which we live. But I pray that our way of life, as we embody this, it will be a, a, a witness to who you are. And that others will be called to take up their great place in this story so that we can be those who are truly reflecting your image into this world. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.